You're listening to Don't Be an Asshole, a spiritual guide, a podcast where we discuss life, music, and spirituality. I'm your host, Eric Tomyer. We'll take a look at this. It's episode number three. All right. There's not going to be any pre or post. We have the rest of the interview with Tim Conley, part three. Let's get in this thing together. All right. I mean, it wasn't like Chicago, but it got cold and it was snow on the ground. And the, the weather, I mean, whether it be when I got there, it was really, really cold. Mm-hmm. And then as time went on, it started to heat up and there was humidity. Yeah. So we don't have the humidity. It's more of a drier climate in L.A. It's rare that it gets humid here. And yeah. so I had to adjust to that. And just stuff that was weird and not normal to me, like you go in the bank and the lady's like, hey, how you doing? How's your day? So they want to talk to you. People want to talk to you at a restaurant. I was like, where am I at? Because in L.A., no one does that. Yeah. <laughs> it's like this. So L.A. might sound like a strange, odd place to some of your folks if they're listening in Oklahoma, but I was just going through culture shock. But you learn to adjust when you when you stay somewhere for a while. I think after two months, I started to adjust to, to Oklahoma. I mean, not that I became an Oklahoman, but I realize that this place is really, really flat mm-hmm. and it's really, really quiet mm-hmm. And other than football games or basketball games. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's what it is. Well, I mean, the atmosphere for a football game there, as you well know, the town is about 100,000 people, give or take. The stadium seats about 100,000 people, give or take. The town is still full. The stadium is full. Then there's another 50,000 people tailgating around the stadium. So like starting like Thursday, yeah, <laughs> for Saturday yeah. game. It's a state of like three and a half million people. So thirty percent of the entire state is in a town of a hundred thousand people yeah. every Saturday for home games in in the fall. I always say like I I wouldn't want to live in Oklahoma in the summer. Hot and humid, it sucks. The winter time, you don't get beautiful cold weather. You just get bitter cold weather. Wind chills like below zero, ice. Mm-hmm. Um, in the springtime, it's nothing but you. Know, it's tornado season. Mm-hmm. It happens every year. It's not unpredictable. It's tornado season. So fall, football season. Some people, they summer in the Hamptons, winter in Florida, whatever. I would fall or autumn in Oklahoma if I could afford just to have multiple homes. You know, go right. there, just live there from uh, October 1st to Christmas and then then get back to L.A., you know? Yeah. You know, I, I'll say this. I love how kind and friendly everyone was, but I definitely saw a different kind of challenge in terms of when we talk about race and race relations. Yeah. And it was more, it wasn't as heavy as what you see in like Mississippi, but I had never seen a Confederate flag in person until I moved to Oklahoma. And in fact, my teammate had a Confederate flag in his living room and he was my next door neighbor in my apartment building. And at first, I was so dense, I didn't even know what it was because I c- can't say that I had a, I was a great student in school in those days and studied U.S. history so well. I didn't learn what it was until my dad came to visit me and my roommate, I mean, not my roommate, my teammate had his door open and you could see the Confederate flag in the living room and he went up to shake my dad's hand and my dad was kind of acting awkward. My dad grew up in Grenada, Mississippi, in between Memphis, Tennessee, and Jackson, Mississippi, in the 50s and 60s. So you can imagine what's going on in his mind. My dad pulled me to the side, and he said, do you not know what that is, son? 
I said, oh, it's a flag like on the Dukes of Hazard car and it's from his hometown. It like, represents him. He, so I just got a 15 minute lecture on the history of the Confederate yeah. flag. And I was like, that was my introduction to Oklahoma. Yeah, and that, I grew up not thinking anything about it because it didn't affect me. And that's, when I say people are assholes, I don't mean that everybody is out to get anybody, but we're just selfish and we don't think about things that don't affect us. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I used to love the Dukes of Hazard, them Duke boys. You know, they're in a heap of mess trouble now. We loved them here in L.A. too. And it, there are still people that I know who, who fly the Confederate flag. But until you meet somebody who that has a visceral effect like it had on your father, you don't realize that it's not just a token of culture. Mm-hmm. Now, to these guys... I, they're not overtly racist. They're just not all of them anyway. Some of them might be. You know, I'm, I'm not going to paint with a broad brush. Yeah. But growing up, the people I knew that had Confederate flag wallets, they weren't racist people. They were just from the South. And nobody ever said, hey, you know what? That that really makes me uncomfortable. I, I watch YouTube videos a lot of, of comedy because I, I love comedy. It's one of my favorite things. And I used to watch those uh, roasts from the the 60s, mm-hmm. you know, the with Sammy Davis Jr. and people. And people said all sorts of weird racist things, yeah. you know, to Sammy Davis Jr. And he would just laugh his head off. And then the comments from older white people are like, see, back in the day, you could make jokes about anything and people didn't get offended. He just laughed at it. What was he going to do? That was no his choice. career. That was his life. You know, if he didn't just let the water roll off his back, he didn't have the, didn't have the permission to say, you know what, I think that's offensive. Now, people are standing up. Women are standing up. Men are standing up. Black men are standing up. And it took a little longer, but Asian men are like, you know what, it's not funny to say that we all know Kung Fu and are good at math, you know, to hold your eyes up and make, you know, squinty, you know, that's, that's racist, that's stupid. And, and people still do that. And it's not good, it's not funny. People didn't have the, like, I'm just going to use permission right now, to stand up and say, I didn't like, I don't like that. And at, if somebody would do that, the, the, like if that kid, because that's what he was, was a kid, if someone would have told him, hey, that's really kind of offensive, if he was really friends with people of, of any other colors, he would be like, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know that. I think that's how people who are not overtly racist, who grow up with racist tokens, would respond. Now, people who have actual racist things going on in their heads will be like, nah, screw you guys. You know, this is culture. It's, it's culture, not hate. You know, the statues, all this stuff. And, you know, I think art still needs to stand because it reminds us of where we went wrong and it reflects a culture that used to be. It doesn't have to be celebrated. It just needs to still exist, I think. Mm-hmm. Whether it's the music or those statues, they don't have to be in the park, you know, <laughs> but... Um, yeah. Is I think instead of destroying them, you make a monument of this is where we went wrong. Yeah. You know, I don't know. I could be wrong. That's one thing about turning. I'm 43 years old now. In my 20s, I thought I was right about everything. We all did. <laughs> if I believed it, you still think what you believe is right. But I was so right. I believe what I believe because it's right. When I was in my 30s, I was like, I don't know. I don't want to say anything publicly. I don't want anything to be misinterpreted. I don't want anything to come back on me. I don't want to say something that's wrong and 
change my mind later and have someone think that I was wrong. Now I invite it so much. I'm going to say stuff that I believe and then halfway out of my mouth, I'll be like, oh, I don't know if I actually believe that. I, I just, I, I want to work out my belief system almost publicly at this point where I'm like, oh, this is what I think. And so I'm like, oh, I don't think that's right. I'm like, oh, hmm, maybe you're right. Because I go into almost every situation assuming I'm wrong now because I know how little I know. And so if somebody else knows something I don't, well, that fills in a gap that I have. I'll go in with a strong argument, but if someone has something to say that makes sense to me, I've never been more open to being wrong in my life than I am right now, which is an interesting place to be for someone who is known as being argumentative. All right, let's take a hard left turn here. And uh, are you still doing uh, the teaching music at Northridge? So I am, I was teaching a hip hop class at, at CSUN. Currently, I'm not teaching that class. I also started teaching a history of, basically a history of African Americans in film. Oh, wow. Um, we offered that the last couple semesters, but um, they're going to continue with the class in the fall. I'm not going to be teaching it. I'm actually going to be teaching at Santa Monica College. I teach uh, still a different film class, kind of like a mainstream intro to film. And I teach about uh, intro to media. So we cover a lot of the things we're talking about will come up in different things that we discuss in that the intro to media class. Um, but the, I'm actually in the fall, I'm creating as we speak, a sports focus on the intro to media. So we're gonna cover everything from the different things athletes are going through hmm. off the court or off the field to what it is like to try to start a channel or a network or work on a sports movie. So we'll cover all those topics. Oh man, I might have to uh, crash that course a little bit. Yeah, it should be fun. The official th way to say I'm not gonna pay for your course is to audit it. <laughs> <laughs> I always tell folks, if you wanna come by and hang out, come by, let's do it. All right, so one thing I always wanna ask everybody because to me music is super spiritual uh, because I, I love art all art, and I think it has a place in our culture because it defines our culture, but music is the most visceral thing. And I, I say it's the most surface form of art, not in shallow, but in actual more depth. Like it comes from the very core of your being all the way to the surface of your skin. You scratch it, it's like there. You know, that's what I mean by surface. It, it's the most visceral way to tap into emotional art to me is music. I'm always going to talk about music. I'm passionate about music. But what I want the question, the reason why I'm setting up this question so long is because this is episode one. I'm going to ask everybody to tell me about a song that always takes you back to the same memory. Like every time you hear this song, you think of this same thing. And then we'll talk about the song and we'll talk about that memory. So do you have anything like that? Or am I weird? Because I have like dozens of songs that take me to a specific place. That I'll always that's I'll always at least think of this one thing. Are there any songs like that, or am I just like a freak? There's so many and so many memories I have from childhood, but a song that probably made the greatest impact on me at a very important time is "A Change Is Gonna Come" by Sam Cooke. Oh man! And that's an older song that was first released when my mother was a teenager in the '60s. But that song, I first heard it in Spike Lee's incarnation in his directorial 
not debut, but masterpiece of the Malcolm X film that came out in 1992, starring Denzel Washington, and a great actor. No, oh, it's a great movie. And so, towards the end of this movie, A Change Is Gonna Come is a song that is being played as you see Malcolm X portrayed by Denzel Washington in this like place where he's getting ready to be assassinated. And he knew this, there's a lot of heaviness in what they were trying to do towards um, the power and the civil rights movement. And he was under heavy heat from all sides, including the group he used to be a part of, the Nation of Islam. And so this song, uh, the part, that, what it really did for me is it talks about all the challenges that are going on, but he keeps saying, I know and I believe, not, I'm paraphrasing here, Sam Cooke is saying, a change is going to come, like something better is to come. And that was so important for me because when I heard it, it was post-LA riots, hmm. and I'm living in this ghetto that now in parts of it looks like a third world country because everything was burnt down and LA needed to heal. And the gang violence, although it was temporary, stopped for a while because a peace treaty was created between the Bloods and the Crips because the city promised jobs and to change things. That didn't last very long because a lot of that was not true that they said they were gonna do. But the song meant something to me because it it was hopeful that a change is gonna come and that I kind of felt like how uh, Cuba Goodings Jr. Trey felt in Boys in the Hood, the, the John Singleton movie came out in 91, a year before I think Malcolm X. I was saying to myself, I gotta get out of LA. And A Change Is Gonna Come impacted me because it was around that time that football really started to pick up and I was like, this is my way out. And that song and football kind of were coming together at the same time and I was like, if I get really good at this, a change is gonna come. All right. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's good, man. That's good. I what the one I was thinking of is definitely on a lighter note than that because I have songs that take me back to high school. I have songs that take me back to college. I have songs that take me back to like my first ministry job. You know, as soon as I hear it, I'm there for even a split second. But the thing that I thought of today, driving here, is like what song always brings up the same memory is the David Bowie song, Let's Dance. That's a great song. Yeah, Stevie Ray Vaughan playing guitar on that song. Uh, Stevie Ray was, he's who I consider to be the greatest guitar player who ever strapped one on. He's not my favorite guitar player. That's David Gilmour from Pink Floyd. But Stevie Ray Vaughan, he, he angers me he's so good. You know, he makes me want to break my guitar, not get better mm. at guitar. That's how good Stevie Ray Vaughan is. It's like he's a man possessed. And the solo was amazing, but the song is good, I like it. It's it's my go-to karaoke tune. My mom bought that album on vinyl when it came out in, what, 80, 81, and brought it home and put it on and started doing these weird-looking exercises. <laughs> um, she laid on her back and stuck her feet in the air and started doing what's called the like the, the inverted bicycle. And Oh, gosh, I remember all of that. And then all those exercise videos came out around Yeah, that. the Jane Fonda uh, aerobic videos <laughs> yeah, and, and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so my mom was only 18 when I was born. So she was only 20, uh, like 24 oh, wow. at that point. I was six or seven years old. She was like 24 years old. So she had like all sorts of energy and stuff. I got kids about that same age now, but I'm 43 and I have no energy. You know, I'm like, I can't even lay on my back much less do an inverted bicycle to Let's mm -hmm. Dance. But every time I hear that song, I, at least for a moment, think about that moment in our living room, in our apartment, 
how how the living room looked, how the mm-hmm. couch looked, how she was, you know, I thought she looked so silly on right. the floor, but it was fun. Yeah. You know, it was a, it's a good memory, and it's important to hang on to those good memories. You know, and those are the things that last. It's easier to hold on to bad memories. Yeah, it's easier to hold on to somebody doing you wrong, but it's more important to hold on to the good things and the good times. Right. I, you know, I want to share one other one with you. You may okay. want to use this one instead of the other one I told you. It's up to you. No, no, I'll uh, just use the, but this. But I, I, the, the very first song that I heard that, like, really was when I realized I loved music was in 1983. And it was the Motown 25 uh, anniversary special on TV. Oh, man. And it was the one a lot of folks remember I see this guy wearing this glittery glove and these, oh, and these wow. penny loafers with these shiny glittery socks and this very much so black, sh- shiny, I don't even know what the material was jacket named Michael Jackson. And I didn't even really know who he was because I really wasn't a big music listener before that. And when he did, first that he was with his brothers and they were doing some of the Jackson 5 songs. But then they left the stage and he did... Billie Jean, mm-hmm. and he did the moonwalk, which was actually, I didn't know at the time, the backslide from these tap dancers in the 1950s, and someone had taught him the moonwalk, and he was, had fused all of these dance moves together and how fluid he was moving, and even though I didn't know what the song was really about at that time, I remember my whole family was sitting in the room, and my grandfather, who could care less about pop music, you know, World War II vet, is sitting there watching him move, and he's excited like he's wa- like he would get when he was watching the horse races, mm. and it's just this memory of just like pure joy during an interesting time. And Michael Jackson, I know people want to argue this now. I'm like, there's, I've never, I don't think there's been any performer that's greater than that guy when it comes to just singing and art. performance art, like. You can argue whether you like his music or not, but the, in terms of performer, I, name one. <laughs> Although, at that point in place, the Beatles' Let It Be was my absolute favorite album because my dad already had it, and I wore it out. Thriller was the first album I ever purchased with my own money. Wow. Went out, got it on vinyl, pulling weeds. And the album was like seven bucks back then, maybe even cheaper, you know, after it's been in the store for a little while. But yeah, that was the first album I ever bought with my own money was Thriller by Michael Jackson. Yeah, I, I loved that thing. I loved, what was the song on there that I love so much? Uh, Beat It. I yeah. freaking loved that song, man. Yeah, everybody, yeah. Yeah, yeah that, that, was that was my jam right there, yeah. Beat It. Yeah. I'm going to take you back uh, a little bit. We're going to maybe go back, backtrack a little bit on the race stuff, but I don't know if you remember a conversation we had. Oh, I, I'd only been here like a year. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. I was talking about I wanted to buy a house near here, and so I can invite students over and have cookouts and right. and all this stuff. And I wanted to live closer to campus, and we just wanted to own a home, and we still haven't done that. Right. And I had found a house I really liked in Lamar Park, uh-huh. and it was like four hundred thousand dollars. And I remember to this day, you were like, Eric, you cannot live in Lamar Park. You can't do it, man. And I was like, Why not? And, and like I said before, I'm 5'10", 200 pounds, and you're 6'6", six, six, and at yeah. that point, you're like 390. Yeah, you're like, up there. Yeah. You're like, I wouldn't even walk around in Lamar Park. I don't feel comfortable there. It's crypt territory, man. And I was like, 
I don't even know what that means. So I just dropped it. I'm like, I don't want to live somewhere where my friend who's three times larger than me doesn't feel safe walking around. I got two small kids and, you know, a little wife. And so I was like, ah, all right, damn, because these houses are, are good size and they're cheap, which there's a reason for that. But then like five years later, you walked up to me and like, Eric, you know what I saw in Lamar Park the other day? White people. <laughs> I felt bad that I told you that, actually. I didn't know, though. I was speaking of Lamert Park that I knew from my high school years. And what I started to realize is people were moving into neighborhoods. And the gangs that once kind of festered in these neighborhoods, while there were remnants of them there, it wasn't like it was before. So the picture I saw of Lamert Park was the place that I got jumped in and beat up in. Right. And got my stuff taken. I, the thing is, it still exists here. Well, they're not there in the way they were before. Right. For one, a lot of those guys either they got older, mm-hmm. they went to jail, or they moved out. Yeah. And they started moving out. The laws changed, too. You couldn't hang out in groups of three or four or five like you used to. you get arrested right away. Wow. Whether you were doing something or not. So that alone, and it's a different time now. The crimes you could commit in the 90s, you can't even do now. Everybody's got a camera. Yeah. You know, you're not going to walk up and just rob somebody <laughs> somebody right. filming it. It's just, so, like, those kind of, the petty crimes that they were doing back then, don't, don't as, and, the, and the dope sales, I mean, you might get caught on camera doing that. So it's like you got to be really discreet to live that life now. Right. I have a, a joke I've been working on. Uh, the punchline or the setup, I haven't even decided yet, is that uh, hipsters are basically the Marine Corps of gentrification. They're always the first into like these really bad neighborhoods or whatever. And before you know it, they've taken over. And the thing is, and I'm not talking about like this new breed of hipster, like that they're like software engineers, but they have handlebar mustaches and cool clothes. Yeah. I'm talking about artists who they're living 10 in a loft because it's the only place they can afford. Right. But before long, in comes the little coffee shop in comes the things they want because they're there. You know, and the neighborhood starts changing gradually. Now it's like corporate gentrification. Gentrification in uh, like Brooklyn and gentrification in the arts district here in L.A. happened kind of in an organic fashion. Now you have it's like software companies saying like, well, we're going to buy up this area and gentrify it. Mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not a fan of that. Mm-hmm. I'm not a fan of what's happening in Inglewood right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I love that there's a stadium coming in. I love that there's going to be uh, a lot of things there. But without rent control... Uh, people are losing their places. People are being forced out. Mm-hmm. And if they're renting, like so many people in L.A. are, they're just out of luck. I uh, talked to one lady. She bought a condo or a small house there like five, six years ago for $400,000. And the developers came in and just said, we're going to give you $1.4 million. Just leave. You know, And she's like, sure, yeah. She just took it and, and left because she just made a million dollars. But people renting, people who have been there for 25 years because Inglewood has been Inglewood, mm-hmm. They're going to be out on the street. You know, they're going to have to move to Palmdale. Yeah. And no offense, Palmdale, but I don't want to live in Palmdale. Well, not if you, it doesn't make sense if you work over this way. Yeah. And I mean, if you want to move out there, that's one thing. But if you're being forced to move somewhere, yeah, that's another thing. And that's what's, I mean, to be honest with you, there would be no skid row and people trying to, figure out what to do with the homeless population if it wasn't for the um, the good folks down there and then the rescue missions. They would turn that all into 
um, high-rise apartments and charge ridiculous amounts and lofts and charge ridiculous amounts of money. That's ultimately what a lot of folks want to do, developers want to do. Yeah. I mean, originally, like with the Arts District and a lot of the places, Highland Park or uh, Silver Lake or things like that, you had what you call real hipsters, you know, they moved in because it was cheap, not because it was cool. Right. Now, people are moving to places because it's cool. It feels different. So, yeah, I don't really know what to make of that. I don't know how to solve big problems at a table. Well, I think I'm going to resist diving full head into politics in this podcast. We've been going an hour and 20 minutes already. So I think we got quite a bit. Yeah, there. but I want to end this edition of the podcast with the question, the big question, the spiritual guide question. I've never seen the world more divided than it is now, whether you're on the, especially America. I've never seen America more divided than it is right now. Um, because of the seismic uh, shift that happened in 2016, I always I was a uh, a right leaning moderate independent, but no, it's like now nobody can lean one way or the other. There was like this big crack that happened in November of 2016, and people had to jump to one side or the other. It felt like so. I, this is just a big setup, but in spite of the fact that the world feels so segmented feels so divided and people are so scared right now and there's science and there's all of these things. You know, the world is just moving in a million miles an hour away from spirituality. Why do you maintain or keep leaning into faith or spirituality or what keeps you coming back? Good question. In my research, the purpose of religion has been lost in something that I call its nemesis dogma. These tenets or these beliefs that certain individuals have come up with that they create as, they're really opinions. They're not fact-based. They're opinions that they can talk very smoothly or swiftly or with great articulation around them being truths if they can convince another a, a large amount of people to believe it. They use this dogma, this rhetoric, to what they argue is to bring people to a truth or a justice, but what they're actually doing is dividing or pushing folks away. If you don't believe me, the research we do, do here at the Office of Religious Life, the Dean of Religious Life, who you know, Varun Soni, in his research told me this. Around 1950, 2% of Americans said they were, they didn't say spiritual at that time, that they weren't really religious, okay? We use the word spiritual but not religious in today's terms. That was in 1950, 2% of Americans. The research studies show now that about 34% of Americans are saying that they're not religious, and they use the term spiritual but not religious. And it's 46% among college students age 18 to 22. 46, almost 50%. There was a research study that the LA Times did a few years back, and it was that 87% of college students are moving, 87% almost 100% are moving away from their parents' original religious experience. So it doesn't mean that they're leaving a the religion. They're just moving away from whatever the, that ideal is that the parents were, were a part of. It is my research and belief and my colleagues that it has to do with dogma and that we got away from this idea that religion was there to kind of help somebody bring some peace, some solace, some, some balance, and some unity. Um, to an unbalanced situation happening around them. 
And now I know there's a lot of argument that people say, well, well, the Bible says this and the Quran says this and this, you know, the Bhagavad Gita says this. But if you have done the research, you kind of see that these messages you get, whether it be you believe um, in Jesus Christ as a Christian or uh, the, the, some of the messages of the one who's deemed the prophet Muhammad or the Hindu experience with um, Krishna, whatever you, you, it is. It is my belief that the purpose of these religions and the majority of this country is Christian. The purpose of, of the, the Christ-like message was to bring people together in, in love. Dr. Martin Luther King said once in 1968, I believe it was, before he was assassinated, he said, Jesus taught us how to love. He didn't tell us that we had to like everything, but we still have to love. And I think what is happening now is that love part is being washed over in the message of dogma. Right. That's what's happening in religion. Do you uh, find faith helpful in your own personal life, or are you leaning into spirituality now, or have you leaned out of spirituality for yourself and are looking at it more scientific? I think you can't help but look at the scholarship of it when you work in a place like oh, right. a, a research university. So, I, yes, I absolutely pay attention to the the history, the scholarship, the academic side of religion or um, uh, specific religions. Uh, the majority religion, again, being Christianity. I think we follow that with um, we have a lot of uh, Muslim and Hindu students here and then the, the other religions. So that there's that part of it. But for me personally, to answer your question, I mean, I grew up in a African-American or black Baptist environment with folks who came from southern states who were bringing that uh, religious culture to the tradition of Christianity to L.A. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of stuff I didn't connect with because it wasn't really about Christianity. It was just a cultural thing. Like, why are they telling women not to wear pants in the church? Does it really matter? Right. First of all, Jesus didn't wear pants. If, if we're going back to historically what was going on, but I, you know, I would say stuff like that and get in trouble. Yeah. So I kind of pulled away from that and did like a whole quest, and I went through the gamut of non-denominational, denominational Christian churches. I studied other religions. My practice right now is the Baha'i faith, but I tell people that I love faith and I love practice and. My Christianity, very much so, uh, the way I grew up with it, is entrenched in my heart, and it has guided me through the really tough times. And it, the the older I get, the more I realize that that is the true purpose of why we're here with this religion, is to find a way through our differences to come together and understand that the differences we have are actually the strengths we have when we use them um, in a purposeful way. If we were all the same, then this world, I believe, would be a little boring. We need people to be different sizes, have different thought processes, different ways of doing things. And it's like your family. You know, you got a brother or sister, you love them, but they do stuff and you're like, why the heck do you do that that way? But you still love them at the end of the day. You don't have to understand it. You don't have to do it that way. But sometimes you need them to do it that way because... That's something you, that's not a strength for you, and vice versa. Right. You know? So it, it, that's how that's how I kind of look at it. Yeah. 
Yeah, I uh, was having a conversation uh, a couple of weeks ago with a, a good friend of mine. And this is go, harkens back to how I'll say something and in the middle of saying something realize that I'm wrong. And then I think, I think it was Rick Warren who says, you don't, have to be, you don't have to believe everything you think. You don't have to believe everything you feel and, and all those things. So Because you have to work it out. And he also says, uh, the first time you say something, you say so-and-so said. The second time you say something, you say, I've heard somebody say. The third time you say, I've always said. So you, by the end, you own the thing. So I have no idea if he said that or not, or he just said it three times. But right. what uh, I told him in the, and then changed my mind was that I f- feel like Christians especially are more in love with their theology than they are with Jesus, with God, and with his creation. Yeah. And then I thought, you know, theology, everybody has a theology, mm-hmm. good theology, bad theology. And then I switched it and I used the word dogma that people are more in love with their dogma because where I got the name for this podcast is Mark chapter 12, verse 30. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. To me, that's the most important verse in the entire Bible. What does it mean to love God? Well, God created, if you believe the way I believe, everything we can see, taste, hear, smell. And he created the people that are all around us. Mm -hmm. And as a father myself, I feel more love toward people who show love towards my children yeah. than other. So I think the best way to show love to God is to, to love the people mm-hmm. that he created and to take care of the planet that he has provided us with. Correct. Well, how do you love people? Well, that's where the last part comes in. Start by not being an asshole. Mm-hmm. Love God, love people, don't be an asshole. And that's the bottom line as far as I'm concerned. I love that. Although I must say, when I'm hearing you say that's the bottom line, it's making me think of Stone Cold. Stone Cold, that's the bottom line. (laughs) And that's the bottom line. (laughs) I think that's a good place to stop, man. (laughs) 